welcome to this episode of Battling Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tennant. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders and businesses tick. As we've done this podcast, what's been really nice for us is because we don't have any editors or any people commissioning, we frankly get to do a little bit of what we fancy. And one of the things we've been talking about over the last couple of months is it's all very well that you talk about processes and concepts and techniques for leadership, but there's almost something missing beyond that. So Gareth, perhaps you want to share a little bit about what this podcast today is all about and maybe give a little hint to what's coming in the future. Yeah, so I think you're entirely right. We've we've talked about process and we've talked about concepts a lot. Uh, and of course, a really important part of that is the people that make these things happen. So what we are thinking is we're going to create a, a sub-series of this podcast and we're going to call it The Influencers. And hopefully the, the title will be relatively self-apparent, but we'll, we'll delve in, into that in a little bit more detail anyway. But the idea is to explore individuals from history, from modern times, from across the spectrum of different business sectors, the military, sport, government, a whole load of people to explore. And we're going to have each episode once a month is going to be dedicated to the influencers where we're going to concentrate on unpacking who those people were, getting behind the headlines, getting behind the myths and starting to really understand how they affected the world and why we still talk about it. But presumably, more importantly, for those of us that are trying to be sort of better leaders, presumably, we're just going to offer blueprints. Like, if if you thought this person was a good leader, do everything they did, dress as they did, behave as they did, and you two will be a great leader, right? I can can see a wry smile. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, of course, what we want to do is to understand the wider context of the situation they were in. And of course, bring out the fact that all of these things are not as simple as the myth or the legend might lead us to believe. So, I mean, I do a lot of working with organisations to try and get them to understand the context of their operating environment better um, in order for them to make better decisions. And that covers a whole breadth of subjects, but broadly it is the overlap between people, process and and technology. The people bit, I think, is, you know, we, we concentrate heavily on leadership. We often talk about management. We've talked in this podcast before about how we don't often talk enough about the command structure and how we empower, delegate, create leaders and managers throughout the organization but also i think there is something to be said about recognizing that leadership on its own is perhaps a slightly overdone subject and without baking it into the wider context of whatever that individual situation was we can we can quite often come away with the wrong lessons well i think it's the thing for me that always makes me nervous and you know we're we're, we'll talk in a minute about the first episode we're going to do so I don't want to spoil that one but there's as I sort of implied there's this sense that if we mimic these people we will achieve the same outcomes and I 
I, I'm very, very nervous about that. And, yeah. and a better way of saying that is this. I've worked with lots of people who've worked for me and who I've coached and mentored through the years. And one of the things I've learned to say, which I think is really useful, is my goal is not to make you like me or anyone else. My goal is to make the best you I can help you possibly make. Yeah. And what I mean by that is everyone is unique. And so one behavior or one activity or one way of doing things for one person might bring huge success and precisely the same thing for another person might actually lead to abject failure. And so there is this sort of weird interplay between all of these things. And I've, I've used this term before, which is it's the recipe that makes the cake. And I think this recipe idea, you know, the materials you use, the, the, the utensils you use, the oven you use, the humidity in the air, the type of salt you buy. It's a thousand and one things which actually make the difference between an amazing cake and ostensibly a dreadful cake that was made in exactly the same way, in inverted commas, by the same people. And so I, this isn't a blueprint for success. This is an opportunity for people to have yet more examples they can pull from, I guess. Carrying on from that, it's worth mentioning that we're not only going to focus on individuals as leaders. We want to see what they were like as people, people, as politicians. Policy is really important. As strategists, as managers, as commanders. And I think lastly, as technocrats. And I think we sometimes, in fact, we can add, add another one in there as well, bureaucrats, because I think we, we often smirched the idea of bureaucracy and technocracy but of course these things are very very important for making organizations work so we are definitely going to explore leadership in a lot more detail but i think that's already done by a lot of people what i'd really like to do is to get behind the leadership myths and start to explore how these people were strategists technocrats bureaucrats managers uh, and really start to unpack it and i think it's really worth raising at this point that there are there are lots of obvious go-to people, Churchill, Napoleon, people that when you think of great leaders, there are lots of people that we haven't heard of or not many people will have heard of that have been equally influential. And of course, there is the survivability bias. And so I think it's really worth picking a, a wide range of people that have had influence over time well one so you, you you mentioned the word survivability bias there and we're going to talk about historiography i don't know if that was the right way to say it but is that a word i think it is okay. historiography 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 we'll obviously leave that in so you can enjoy me sound absolutely but, but what i mean by that is it's the story of a person rather than the reality of the person yes so we we say well of course churchill was a great leader well to some degree, that's the story that has been created, which masks sometimes he wasn't a great leader. He got very mm. drunk a lot of the time. Is that a great leader? So I, I think that historiography is really interesting about some of these things. And again, touching on the episode we'll do first, I think lots of people have their own views, which were sort of myth built up over time. But let's go back to, you said survivor bias. I've, I've sort of heard that term before. Perhaps you can dig in a bit more because I think that's probably interesting about the stories we tell. Yeah, so survivor bias is, the, is a heuristic bias that is created from 
picking information that is available to us. We've talked about heuristics and biases before, but it's it's a really common one. So information that is clear and presently available leads us down a certain line of thinking. And, and here's a really good example of it. During the Second World War, the US Air Force were doing huge bombing runs into Germany, the daylight bombing raids, and were suffering really catastrophic casualties as a result. And so they made the decision to reduce the payload of ordnance on each aircraft and increase the armour. So, you know, it's a balance. You can only carry so much weight, so we'll carry less bombs, we'll put more armour. And, and for people who don't know, this was the, the B-17, which was called the Flying Fortress. And the whole point was this thing had 10 guns. I can't remember Something how like that, it was. Yeah. But, uh, Huge but it was, th these were designed to be flying fortresses and they flew together because they mathematically calculated that they would be able to shoot any aircraft and they were protected. Anyway, so... Yeah. So they did a whole load of studies to look at where to put the armour to be most effective because, of course, an aircraft has to be within a certain weight uh, and this is all about balance and the whole purpose of sending the aircraft is to carry the bombs so you can't just armour the whole thing because then it won't be able to carry any bombs and the whole thing's pointless. So this whole calculated balance, and they brought in a load of statisticians. Some, so, I was about to say some technocrats and some bureaucrats. Technocrats and bureaucrats and, huh. Yeah, scientists. Um, and so what they did was they did a study to look at when the aircraft were coming back after the bombing runs, where were the bullet holes? Where were they getting hit the most? Because obviously that's where you want to put the armour. And they realised after you know several months of analysis literally heat mapping if you like bullet holes on the aircraft they worked out that the majority of aircraft were getting hit in the rear section of the fuselage and on the wings and so that's where they were going to put the armor makes absolute sense until somebody pointed out wait a minute wait a minute there's something wrong here uh, and a guy called Abraham Wald, who was from the Statistical Research Group at Columbia University, said, actually, you want to do exactly the opposite. Why would you want to do the opposite? I mean, it, it makes sense. You want to keep the aircraft in the air. So where all the bullet holes are, you want to stop them. Why on earth would you do the opposite? Now, our listeners are not idiots. I know this. So I suspect most of them will have worked this out already. But of course, we are now falling foul of the survivability bias because the only aircraft that we're using to map where the bullet holes are are the aircraft that have come back after the bombing raids. And this was the point that Abraham Wald pointed out. He said, we want armour where the bullet holes aren't, because that's where... Those are the aeroplanes that don't make it... The back catastrophic failures. Hit. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody went, oh, yeah. But, of course, there have been months of research. There was a whole project that was designed, and nobody had identified this until a particular statistician pointed this out. So it, it makes the point that if we take all of the examples of current myth and legend about great leaders, we will take the stories of those that were successful. There are lots of people who were probably very, very good leaders, almost certainly were good leaders, who weren't successful. Well, there's a, I think this is very much related to the, the winners write the history, which is um, not only that, that you're now excluding the other people, even if they were great leaders, but they didn't win in the end and so yeah. they didn't get to write the story. 
Um, but also that bias as well, which is when we, this is very different to the survivability bias, but the, the winners write the story. If we won, the story must by definition be glorious and heroic. And all of a sudden the detail isn't there. There's a book which I'm actually really, really excited to read, which is um, the, the Battle of Kursk. Yeah. So we've, people who followed the Second World War, Battle of Kursk was, was the largest tank battle in history. I don't know whether that was beaten in the Gulf War, but certainly it was an enormous tank battle. And the story that we have been told over the years by the, in inverted commas, the winners, was what the, the Germans were comprehensively defeated and a significant proportion of their, their, their tank and armoured forces were defeated on this battle around a place called Prokhorovka. Now, there is some new research that has gone into it that says, actually, that's not what happened. If you go look at the German uh, diaries, they lost no more armour on that day or around that time than they had previously done in the previous six months, yeah. the latest six months. And in fact, apparently many Russian tanks accidentally drove into their own tank traps. And so yeah. I love this idea that, and maybe this is this whole point about the influences, we can dig under the surface here, which is the truth we're told sometimes is often extremely useful. And I'm not suggesting that everyone is lying and everything is wrong, but actually it doesn't do any harm to just dig under the surface a little bit to understand, rather than saying it was wrong, the phrase is, it's probably a bit more complicated than we might have imagined when we first looked at it. That a genius standing, standing on a horse, sitting on a horse, pointing at a battlefield saying, I've had a brilliant idea, send the cavalry over there. That may be true, but it may also be that something terrible had happened to the other army. Their general had got dysentery that morning. And therefore when he sent the cavalry over, they weren't do you know what i mean it's that, that yeah. you, you have to dig in a little bit more and it's not quite as obvious or as simple as people talk about no absolutely not and I, and I think a lot of this comes down to the way that luck plays a role in strategy and of course you could do things to mitigate and reduce those risks but it's still certainly when we talk about great battles in history you know the when you delve into the detail, the amount of things that had to go right and didn't on a certain day or had to go right and did on a certain day lead to strategic outcomes that then with the hindsight of history written by the victors, we look at as great strategy and the enemy were flawed and their mm. strategy was terrible. Um, Market Garden is a really good example of that. You know, I, I know you've you've read a lot about Operation Market Garden. So this yeah. is for those listening. This is Bridge Too Far. This was yeah. uh, the Allies had successfully gained the beachhead in Normandy. The goal was to end the war as soon as possible, and so an incredibly aggressive uh, operation to parachute people into Arnhem, which at that point was. 50, 60 miles behind enemy lines. Yes. And then there was going to be a lightning thrust. And so those of you who have seen A Bridge Too Far, if you're of, of our age, then you'll have watched it either on Christmas Day or Boxing Day. Of your age. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that, younger, younger of the two of us. Um, but yeah, so so Market Garden, a really good example. Yeah, Sorry, and, and you know, people describe it as being 90% 90 successful. And that's the old joke about Market Garden, because of course, it was either successful or it wasn't. And it was, you know, by historical 
you know, reflection, a failure of a military operation. But again... Oh, look, look, we're going to have to come back and talk <laughs> about this. Well, yeah, we, we could probably do another episode on this. But in terms of what they were trying to achieve, it didn't achieve the strategic objective. That led to a whole load of Correct. things. Sorry, I, I, of avenues. I, I, yeah. I agree. Um, but in terms of Montgomery's vision of shutting the war down by yes, you know, getting into 100%. the the, uh, the heart of Germany uh, and getting tanks onto the border of Berlin, it didn't do that. But it was ninety percent successful. Well, I mean that's like being ninety percent pregnant. You, well, you know, fine. Well, we can have this debate. But my my point is, we history has judged that and, and, and montgomery is a contentious figure market garden is a contentious figure but of course we were overall successful and so there is lots of opportunity for montgomery to be seen as a very successful strategist in north africa in normandy and so people talk about his failure there rather than that being the only thing and i suggest i would suggest or i suspect that if montgomery hadn't been involved in North Africa, Italy, or Normandy, and Market Garden had been the only operation, we wouldn't be talking about 100%. And and just just to sort of reinforce this point, uh, at the risk of starting that episode, and we really should do that episode because it's fascinating, you use the term at the strategic level, it was a failure, and I... I think there's even probably a debate about what was your strategic goal burst or anything. But l- let's talk about this as a as a set of coup de main activities of, of airborne attacks on bridges. Many of them were staggeringly successful. Yeah. It just happened one wasn't. So within defeat, there were many successes. Yeah, and and to, your, yeah. to your point about the 90%. Arguably, the the Allied forces moved that much closer to Berlin, and that that was a, they had to do that to win the war. Yes. Now, yeah, what I mean, the interesting question would have been, what would have the difference been if they had got that one last bridge? Yes, would that have changed things dramatically? But anyway, the well, point, I, I, all of this just goes to show it's never as simple as you said. No, the person not. who says I have a definitive answer yeah. is the one person I'm probably not that interested in. And I, I think, yeah, and I think the fact that, you know, I've mentioned Market Garden deliberately because it's a contentious operation. There are lots of uh, historical analyses that come up with different conclusions. And this debate is ongoing even now where a lot of things, there is a general consensus and, and this is absolutely not a settled debate. But it would only have taken some very, very minor changes in weather conditions, minor actions at the very sub-tactical yes, level, absolutely. mistakes by the Germans at certain key points to... Mistakes on the British side, come on. Well, there were mistakes, yeah, absolutely. Get in the Jeep. What, what I'm saying is, if we had have got that bridge, if we had have linked up and it had have been a successful operation, we wouldn't be having these you're right contentious you're, you're debate right. and yet the risk beforehand was exactly the same so yeah we, we've kind of done this point to death here but we want to explore these things tear them apart unwrap the myths and start to really get at the heart of you know what is good leadership what is good management what is good bureaucracy what is good strategy how can you tell what lessons are there where are the myths how does history judge these things? 
Um, and yeah, and, and it's going to force us to read some really good books. By the way, I love the what is good bureaucracy. That is a winner. Mm. That will get us extra listeners. The podcast for good bureaucracy. Well, look, let's let let's keep poking at this because we wanted to sort of talk about this is something we we're going to do, but we thought this was an interesting topic in itself. There's there's one topic that always comes to mind when I, you know, when these great influence of the world are mentioned, and that is the word heroes. We treat yeah. them as heroes. Um, I have a particular view about heroes and it, in a sense, it's neither good nor bad, but it's very nuanced. Gareth, heroes, if you were handed a rifle and told to go back to Hellman province, I guess, yeah. probably quite popular in Hellman province right now for that. But if you had to go back, I'm not sure we were ever popular in Hellman province. Okay, well, that, that's a fair point. Um, would you want to be surrounded by seven heroes, or I'll leave it at that? Would you want to be surrounded by seven heroes? Let's let's probe the term hero and whether we what we think about that. Yeah. So depending on your definition depends on the answer doesn't it so do i want to be surrounded by people who could be viewed as heroic by an external audience probably i want i wanted i was i was very fortunate to be working with a unit that was full of people who were tenacious who were brave and courageous who were skilled who at the right times were willing to channel aggression to win firefights so all of those things are really positive when you are leading a combat team do i want people that are going to try and single-handedly seize the opportunity seize the day and no and the term heroes from a military context is a, is a very controversial term anyway because it it is sometimes or often used as a label for people who are undertaking the activities that they are paid trained and tasked to carry out it is applied to those that tragically didn't come home or have been badly injured and that I think is a very different meaning and, and I, I'm trying to pick my words very sensitively and carefully here because the reason that you don't come home or get catastrophically injured is not down to whether you're a hero a hero or not it's down to mostly down to luck um a whole load of other factors well, well let's 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 take this to the civilian world because I I, I, I think you're absolutely right where there are it, it is easy to come to a conclusion about what we mean by heroes and say our heroes are bad. And, and we can give some, I think there's some interesting military examples we can talk about. H. Jones as an example in, in the Falklands War. But I think that could be very contentious and it's very easy. Just a podcast episode of really contentious things right now. Isn't we, it? We, it is. But look at this. Our editor, who doesn't really exist, is looking at us angrily saying, don't yeah. be so contentious. No, but going back to the civilian world, and I, I think this helps look at it through a slightly different lens, but the same idea, which is every business has their heroes. Yeah. They are the people who work ludicrous hours that are at 10 o'clock at night saying, 
I heard you had this problem. I've gone away and I've solved the problem, whether it's a developer who says, you said you wanted to do something and I worked all this weekend yeah. and I did it for you through to a person who says, you know, I will sacrifice my personal life and I will do this for you. This idea of heroes, which is, it's the person that closes the gap for a business in a way that perhaps reflects there was something missing in the first place. Now, the reason why I say that is, and, and to go, I asked a facetious question about, do you want heroes around you? I think the reality is, of course we want heroes, because for all the reasons you've said, people willing to sort of sacrifice, courage, bravery, tenacity. But if all you've got is heroes, yeah. I think you've got a bit of a problem. So in my world, when we identify heroes, we should, of course, praise, congratulate. You know, these are people that have gone the extra mile where they perhaps didn't need to. But the problem is, if you're running a business and you're surrounded by heroes and you need those heroes, what that's also telling you is well, you've, you've kind of screwed up yeah. because why did you need those heroes? Why did that person have to work the weekend for it? And so heroes are this thing where you want heroes to, to be heroic occasionally, but if it stops being occasional, you're, that's, a very, that's a bad thing. In fact, it's a very dangerous thing because if the only way for you to be successful is for people to nearly kill themselves in a business sense, yeah. that is not a recipe for success. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And you raised you know, the term heroes in the um, episode about why projects fail. And you said that actually you don't recognize where things are going wrong if plug the gaps every always time. plug the gaps. Yeah. Um, and there's something to be said about obviously you know catching the ball before you drop it and, and actually not catastrophically failing. I think the term here is if we think about where it comes from, you know, mythology, we've already said several times we want to break the mythology, we want to get at the heart of the reality. So what does it take to, to be a hero in a mythology? Well, you need a you need a narrative story that has heroes and villains. You've got to have baddies and goodies. And you've got to be the underdog. You've got to go through arduous adventures. You've got to then learn, go through this story arc to then save the day. Well, if you are the underdog and you take it out of the context of the individual, the, the hero character to the organization, then you arguably are, are either pitted against a better organization, a bigger organization, a stronger organization, in which case, actually, the hero narrative might work quite well. So in the startup idea, I think that is where this kind of fits quite well. But bring it back to a military example. We've talked already a lot about the Second World War. The, the motivational approach of the Germans was to have heroes. And they used heroes whether they be you know the winners of the iron the cross ubermensch soldiers yeah. that were you know they fitted the archetypal kind of nazi ideal of blonde blue-eyed square-jawed heroes that were plastered on posters everywhere or those cunning generals that kind of saw over um saw through the fog of war if you like they needed heroes because collectively as an organization they were under-resourced and they were badly led. 
they were overly centralized and all the all the stuff that you know, we've talked about in lots of podcasts to cover history in a far better way than we do already have covered we didn't have the heroes in quite the same way in the allied force because the organization worked better so whilst there were emergent heroes after the after the fact we didn't need them as a motivational force going going Actually, through the I, well that's interesting i'm not I, I think the relative comparison's fair because i think in you know in Russia, Vasily Zaitsev, who is known as the sniper yeah. who killed all these people, Pavlov's house, that, that, that's another regime where heroes were really important. Yeah. But I think, I, I think we have to be slightly careful because I do think there were heroes. Guy Gibson was told he was famous. He was, you know, th there were these people who did these certain things. Perhaps not to the same degree. Yeah. And of course, as you say, I mean, when you get to the generals, you know, yeah. Montgomery was the perfect example of he was famous during the war. Patton was famous during the war. But, but I, I think, I think mythology, it's a fair point that it wasn't the same. If you think about the mythology of the Second World War now, we talk far more about Blip Spirit than we do about Guy Gibson, which is a collective undertaking. And I think that was our approach. And it was about teamwork. As a military former military officer that kind of talked about military stuff to organizations to help them be more effective to help them make better decisions i often have to overcome this myth if you like that you know i'm gonna go in and talk about bravery or talk about leadership because um that is seen as the archetype of military sort of success there are two sort of stories or narratives that i often have to dispel when i'm giving a talk or, or a workshop before i even start which is that there are great generals who as, as we've already said can see through the fog of war that have somehow this superhuman insight and brilliance that they can outwit the enemy general as if it's some great chess game. These are the only looking, two people here. Yeah, and they're looking over the board and they're doing strategy and they're moving pieces around the board and one of them has better insight than the other. And you, know, you can think about, um, I don't know, Napoleon and Wellington as like this yeah. pitch. Yeah. The reality is, of course, they don't have superhuman insight. They might have slightly better intelligence. They probably have a better organised system they probably have a better motivated organization. All of the things we've talked about in terms of mission command, in terms of delegation of authority, these are the things that make big armies more successful against other big armies. Better logistics, better operational art, all of these things, not the superhuman insight of one general. The other narrative is the, the, the junior leader who leads through inspirational demonstration so the individual that gets up and runs towards the enemy when all is lost and it's that defiant act that motivates everybody else to get up and run at the enemy now they do exist there are plenty of examples throughout conflict of individuals doing that and i'm not in any way trying to take away from the amazing inspirational stories of, of these individuals but they are quite rare and it is not normally how militaries are successful 
in tactical operations. So you mentioned H. Jones. That was a, an act of attempting to be the inspirational leader to charge at the enemy when everybody um, was pinned down. There was another example of a, of a Scots Guardsman um, doing that at platoon level uh, on Wireless Ridge, I think, where they were pinned down uh, and he remembered reading about a previous act by the Scots Guards in the Second World War and he uh, stood up and said something about we are the Scots Guards and, and ran at the enemy and it worked. And, and these things do happen, but, but they are few and far between. And actually what I try to bring to civilian organisations is that is rare, not something you can necessarily or should train for. It is something that comes out of having a very well-motivated force. But actually the thing that normally wins through in a firefight is having people that are well-versed in what they're doing, that have the shared consciousness to understand what other people are likely to be doing, understand the mission, they know what they're trying to achieve and what the greater purpose is, and they are professional in what they do, and they work together as a team. And so for me, the military lessons, and hopefully this has come across in you know the, the last 20 episodes we've done or whatever it is of this podcast, is about creating adaptive teams that perform well under conditions of complexity because of all of these things we've talked about. I think people, there's this risk, people see heroes as shortcuts. Yes. And people see heroes as a way to overcome other shortcomings. When the reality is, there is always a place for heroes, as you have said. And by the way, just to be clear, I welcome having people who are willing to do those things in my business. But if if you are betting the future of your business on those heroes yes. alone, that's the bit that's going to go. Yeah, well, look, we, let, let, let's stop for a quick break. Let's come back and, and, and dive in a little bit more, because I, I think this idea of heroes and myth is really interesting. But there's there's an intriguing publication I can see in front of you, which I think has the word Sandhurst on it. So let's dig into that. And then also let's just sort of talk a bit more, maybe as an advert for the future, just some of the folks that we think we might talk about in terms of those influences as well. Because uh, we're, we're saying the context, but let's actually talk about Absolutely. So, and I, I think um, when we get on to who we're going to be talking about, we, we need to make it very clear that some of them are absolutely not heroes. Yes. So not all goodies, as they say. All right. Well, we'll see you uh, straight after the break. Okay, well, welcome back. Um, just before the break, we were talking about heroes and sort of their application. I don't know if there was anything you wanted to sort of add on to that. Well, I think I, I've mentioned before the overwhelming disparity between books on leadership and books on management. And, and then, again, the difference between the number of books on management versus the books on command. I suspect there are very few books on bureaucracy i was about i was just about to say that <laughs> Very, i don't remember those being in the times top no 10. no but these are important things and it's about getting the balance right and i i think there is 
almost a myth itself around leadership. And I think we we almost fetishize leadership at the expense of some of these less glamorous things, less glamorous concepts and processes that without leadership becomes the search for heroes. Well, and I, I, I'm sure this sort of ebbs and flows through, through history and culture. I think the perfect example of that, which personally made me furious when I heard it, was I think it was Michael Gove's quote a few years ago, I think we've all had enough of experts. Now, that there are, you know, there's obviously context around that statement, which is, um, I think, to be fair to him, I think he was trying to say that there are, there, is, there are experts, but at some point you have to take a step back and apply common sense to it. But fundamentally, that sense that somehow um, instinct and hope yeah. and aspiration trumps expertise and good i think that's a really good parallel to what we've just been talking about particularly around here being heroes and the myth of this which is it, in a sense he was almost saying i'm gonna i'm gonna cross fertilize this and it doesn't make sense which is we don't need to have more tanks more food better equipment better trained people all we need are people who just hope we're going to win and cheer at the right time and run at the end. It'll all be great, which which I think is very, very dangerous. There is there is a place for heroes. There is a place for the bureaucrats, for the technocrats. And I think going back to the point that started with this, which is managers. So come on, we've got share with the listeners the, the publication you have in front of you. So um, I have served to lead which is an anthology, I suppose, um, that is given to junior well, officer cadets at Sandhurst. And I need to make it clear here, I'm a Royal Marines officer, and so I went through Limston and did my officer training down at the Commando Training Centre, rather than going through Sandhurst. So I'm looking at this book, uh, and I recognise a lot of it. It is very similar to a lot of the stuff we talked about mm. and were taught um, on the... And I'm, I'm sure very similar to Dartmouth as well. Yeah, absolutely, and, and Cranwell and, 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 and also other nations, of course. What I find interesting about Sandhurst is their motto is actually serve to lead. That's where the title of this book oh, comes I from. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realise that. So it is on the cap badge and it is the motto of the officer cadets undertaking officer training to be an officer in the British Army. And I have always found that slightly odd and I, I accept I have my own bias, not being an army officer, but it's always struck me as, an, as almost the wrong way around. Well, just before we talk about the wrong way around, because I hadn't thought about this and, you know, we, you flashed the book in front of me before we came on today. What a, what a fascinating motto for Sandhurst. So Sandhurst as a, uh, you know, the British army, is about the projection of military power to defeat the energy, uh, to defeat the enemy energy. Um, that just strikes me as a really surprising motto. And, and dare I say it, we, we're going to talk about the motto itself yeah. and whether it's whether we, we agree with it per se, but that's sort of more the specifics around the motto itself. But just this idea of, do you, I, mean, I don't know you have the answers, why is that their motto rather than kill all the bad people 
or something perhaps more eloquently stated. Um, it just seems surprisingly thoughtful. The statement to your new leaders, the first thing you say to them is serve to lead. This idea of service and this idea of leadership. Do, do you, I mean, do you have any context for why that's where they've landed on it? So I suspect this is um, dispelling that myth that soldiering is all about killing the enemy. It's all about violence. And of course, a large part of a modern army is about delivering decisive force. But I think fundamentally, it's that balance of the moral component, the conceptual component and the physical component. And, and of course, Sandhurst is where they are training and producing the commissioned officers that go on to be the platoon commanders, the troop commanders, so the junior officers, but also the generals of 15, yeah. 20 years time. Uh, and so to plant that seed that this is about being inspirational leaders, it's about service to the, the wider system of the British Army of defence well, really country. early on. And, and I think, firstly, I think it's really uh, encouraging and an excellent thing that they give this book on day one that is full of really insightful and fascinating stuff before I start to question some of the detail. But it's but what, what we're I think what we're going to go on to talk about the detail. But I, I for one, think if we're in this world now where lots of people talk about doing Britain down, which I, I, I fear we're in a culture war at the moment. But the idea that the overarching principle and motto for the place where we train our military leaders is serve to lead i suspect that puts us at a significant different place than many of our potential adversaries i yeah. would be fascinated to know what the russian military academy uh, motto was or the the chinese military academy and to that matter to various european and americans yeah i i really suspect many of our adversaries probably are more along the lines of kill all our enemies or for the glory of our country rather than service so that that fascinating sorry yeah slight diversion that's fascinating anyway, no i think it, i think it's a really it's a really useful point to pick up on and and it comes down to this i've said before we quite often over overestimate our ability to change an organization through tweaking you know the process or and we underestimate our ability to change an organization through character and i think that's what this is getting i after. think it really is i think it is okay now now we've said how wonderful that is and by the way at some point we should get some of the folks from sandhurst and dartmouth and limston to come and talk about how they train some yeah. of our, our, our sort of young soldiers and uh, airmen and, and and sailors now now let's go pick so one thing i know you're interested in is the phrase serve to leave. Yeah, so I said before, I, I've always felt that it, it feels like it's the wrong way around. And I've had this discussion with army officers uh, several times. And, and what we end up doing is, is arguing around the same point until it becomes semantics. But fundamentally, I think it would make more sense as an outsider looking in if this was lead to serve. And, and my argument for that is if it's serve to lead, it makes lead become the end objective. And for me, leadership is about getting people to do things. And if it's good leadership, it's about getting people to do things in order to create better conditions. And so 
it strikes me that the purpose of an officer in the military or a leader in any organization is about getting people to do things in the service of the strategic objectives of that organization and so lead to serve would strike me as a more logical approach we are leading you are learning how to be good leaders in order to serve the country to serve the nation to serve national interest serve to lead makes it seem a little bit like you've joined the army in order to be a leader and that's the end goal um, and of course that's not what they mean but it just it's just i've always found well I, I mean I, I mean i think at the end of the day the fact that the word serve and lead come together is the is is the most important thing yes, and yes. to your point you can argue which round but i i tend to agree with you which the we we've talked about this in one of the previous podcasts which is something i learned as a product manager and i i i, I don't know whether this is stretching it to sort of compare it to this but a product manager's role is not to create a um a committee yeah and to be the person who takes the minutes at the committee meeting. That is not what our role is. Our role, our purpose is to lead. And by leading, we are serving our teams. So um, what we're actually doing is we're saying that uh, there is a value to our teams by offering leadership to them. So I think that's great. Now, I know there's one other thing you wanted to specifically talk about. Um, rather than read the whole 120 pages, or pages there, are, there is an excerpt that I think you wanted to read because it I, I know it was one that made you raise your eyebrows significantly and perhaps sort of loops us back into some of the earlier conversations we've had about what makes at the highest level, what makes a, a successful organization? What are the yeah. constituents that you need to be a success? So we've talked about the myth of leadership. I've talked about um we've we've talked about the balance of leadership management command bureaucracy technocracy fitting it all within the strategic context there's a it's page 11 so very very early on um in fact yeah after the forward it's you know the next thing um is a chapter or a paragraph called leadership and management and i'm just going to read read the first sentence and the last sentence we do not in the army talk of management, but of leadership. And then it goes on to talk about why. And then the final sentence is managers are necessary, but leaders are essential. And for me, this whole paragraph effectively prioritizes leadership over management in a way that makes it feel like they're falling into that fetishizing leadership trap that as long as you get your leadership right, everything else will be fine. And, and I struggle with this because um, I'm a, uh, a scholar of a guy called Edgar Schein, who is a, uh, a psychologist who writes a lot about organisational culture. And Edgar Schein says leadership and organisational culture are two sides of the same coin. And I completely buy into this concept that, in order to be effective as a leader, you've got to understand the culture that you're trying to lead. You've got to understand the people that make up that culture and why the things that they believe, the things that they do, their behaviours, their assumptions create the culture that you're then trying to guide 
through whatever journey you're trying to guide them through. If you don't think about it in that context, if you just think about leadership at the behest of culture, you end up fetishizing leadership. Yeah. Um, and I've asked the question twice now, and to be fair, of, of senior leaders in a public forum, and to be fair, one of them was a very senior army officer, that was the uh, commandant of Sandhurst and the head of army leadership. Uh, and the other one was a very senior Royal Marines officer um, who had just done a very long uh, investigation into a failure of leadership uh, and was uh, very senior in developing our leadership programme. Uh, and they both came up with the same answer, which I found equally disappointing. So this isn't an attack on the army because my, uh, my community, the Royal Marines, are, are equally guilty of this. Both of them said, if you get leadership right, the culture will follow. And that was their answer. And I think that is fundamentally well, flawed. I, I, rather than, I'm, I'm sure there'll be people that have their own view on this, but I'll, I'll let, me, let me use different words to test the same thing. Uh, when I bake a cake, uh, egg is useful, but flour is essential. That's ridiculous. Yeah. The idea that you would say, ah, oh, well, I mean, I'll, I'll make my cake without eggs. That's fine. Of course you wouldn't make the cake without yeah. eggs. The cake wouldn't bind and rise and all those kinds of good things or whatever it is eggs do in cakes, I don't know. Yeah. But I think I think I, I tend to agree with you both about how it, it almost goes back to the, if we have heroes, it will all be fine. Yeah. No, you have to have that firm base where it works, where heroes extend that not make up for the lack of that so yes that's interesting. Yeah. and there's, there's a i'm not going to get into the details of this but there's a lot of criticism of defense as well as other you know, large government departments uh, at their inability to manage projects well um and, you know, currently going through the news there's this whole debacle with the ajax project um but there are countless military procurement projects throughout history that have that have gone badly over budget managed badly the end result is terrible they're behind uh, the time scales when they're brought into service the, the equipment's already out of date etc etc lots of this and, and it's a commonly talked about thing is well it's because we produce leaders for a very specific context and we don't really worry too much about teaching them management especially not things like project management or business management it's funny i mean i know we've, we've sort of been military heavy on this one but i think that's still true in in sort of the business world people talk about management training but i don't think we do very much of it and i think the reality is every you know i've been doing my job now for 20 years management management training is a remarkably small part of what we do and is the first thing to go when things are difficult or there are other things to focus on. So yeah. I think that's true. Yeah, Look, we've, we've, we've been talking about this for a while. We've been warming up about sort of this sort of new group of podcasts. Let's finish off today maybe by just sort of giving some examples of some of the people that we think we might want to talk about. Yeah, well, I think before we do that, it's probably worth just talking about what the format is oh, going to be. yes. Well, that's quite useful if we're going to record it. I don't know what, what is we're going to do. Yeah, so I think... So we, to finish this off, this, this chat about the myth of leadership and the role of management and, and all of these things, it ultimately, leadership is about getting people to do things. And it's about getting to do 
do things in order to achieve things and within the strategic context it's achieving things over the long term under conditions of uncertainty simon sinek uh, who i'm a, a big admirer of talks about uh, a leader is just somebody who has followers so it's not an appointment it's not a rank it is just somebody who has people that they can influence hence the name of our subset of podcasts the influencers and i just just on that point this is this is for all the product people that maybe are listening in this is why every time you hear me talking about product managers i declare them to be leaders and i get this look from Quite. people which is yeah. but these people don't report to me i don't uh, as, as it were i don't own these people exactly your definition is yeah people who are followed or have followed yeah. followers i think that's really important sorry that was a segue just for the product people sure um and so uh, it, it's simon sinek's definition not mine but he then goes on to talk about how you can then get followers to do things either through manipulation or inspiration and that's it you can either inspire people to do things or you can manipulate them to do it and in some cases you can manipulate people to do things in a particularly coercive negative way you can force people through physical violence or you can be quite machiavellian and you know corrupt people or change their behavior based on changing their beliefs and this is the whole world of marketing um, doing evil for good doing evil for good there's a whole debate in there about where the balance lies. And I'm pretty sure at some point we will probably cover Machiavelli as one of our influences. What we'll do is each of us will go away and do a bit of research into a particular individual. Um, and the first thing we'll do is see what the we current, know. yeah, what is the current myth? What does somebody who hasn't necessarily done the research, uh, what do you know about these people? And then we can dispel those myths or we can break them down and yeah. we can understand where they came from. So we can tell what we're going to call the real story. Now, of course, this is the real story from it will be our perceptions uh, from our limited research. It will not be the in detail biography, but hopefully we will approach this as we talked about from a different perspective. Well, also, I think for me, the real story is another way of saying this maybe is the more complete story and what yes. i don't mean is we go into a million details but typically the story is people remember the highlights yeah and yeah. so montgomery was this amazing general that led us to invade normandy yeah. and conquer germany well hang on a minute he was in the first world war as well let's talk a bit about that yeah so i think the the real story perhaps the complete story what's the bigger picture yeah and i think we can look then at what they achieved uh, and perhaps what they didn't achieve um, and that's not just through the lens of success and fame, but what they managed to do in terms of yeah. influence. So how did they change behaviour? What were they trying to achieve as an outcome? Did they, what is remembered? What isn't remembered? Why? And then from that, we can have a, a discussion um, about those individuals and start to hopefully draw out some conclusions where we can decide, you know, what we should be remembering that we're currently not and which bits of the myth are worth forgetting do you know what that sounds good we should do that we should <laughs> cool so um 
that we've been rabbiting on now about leadership and individuals in leadership. Go on, quick that. advert. Who are we going to yeah. do first? Well, let, let's just talk about the next uh, four or five, uh, and that'll set us up for the next four, four or five months. Because we're going to do one per month. I bet we're not going to do all of. I bet we're going to change our minds on oh, these. Almost certainly. But so uh, next week we're going to do our first one. So who are we going to do? Let's. Well, I, you know, I think the cliche is we do the military people, and we certainly should. But um, I have a personal interest and passion around Steve Jobs because I think he's one of these really interesting characters where the historiography, the story of Steve Jobs has almost become large than the truth. So I wanted to start with Steve Jobs. And then after that, who well, have you got? I am going to do um, some military people, but I'm, I'm not going for the obvious military people to start with. I think we will get to them at some point, but... I want to introduce a chap called Colonel John Boyd, who's a US Air Force colonel, um, because I think he has a fascinating story, but I think most people don't know it. And the bits that they do know, if they know about John Boyd, are based on myth. Um, and he's quite a recent character. He only died in the 90s. He was a US Air Force officer quite famous around the Korean and Vietnam wars. So I want to expose some of those myths, but also introduce a military leader that perhaps a lot of people haven't heard of. The next person after that is somebody that we're both very interested yes. in. Yes, yes, yes. I hadn't, I had heard of him, but I, I hadn't really appreciated who he was or what he'd done beyond being involved somehow in the Dam Busters. And that is Leonard Cheshire, who I learned about reading something else recently uh, and have become fascinated and i think coincidentally we've both ended up with biographies but different biographies we, we have and and what's interesting is he is a very particular crossover between the military and civilian life where yes. some people may have heard of the term cheshire homes that is directly leonard cheshire so that mm. i'm looking forward to that one that will be interesting yeah as well. so you know kick all those uh, inspirational leader, probably a lot of the mythology around hero, and, but then also went on to have this fascinating post-war life that we need. Well, to and, and just just to, to to whet people's appetite, so Leonard Cheshire was the commanding officer of Six One Seven Squadron, the Dam Busters, after the Dam's raid, yes. and so Guy Gibson, who was the commanding officer before the Dam's raid, and Leonard Cheshire both leading the same unit, both incredibly successful and brave, but very, 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 very different people, different yes, leadership yeah. styles. And so there's something interesting for us to talk about there as yeah. well. Um, for our military audience, and I know there's a few of them. I think I'm, we have to do this. This is the... Yeah, this I'm, is the... I'm going to help them with their homework. So <laughs> uh, we're going we're gonna to delve into Carl von Clausewitz. Um, but for the non-military audience, I suspect this may be somebody they've heard of or, or maybe even not. Um, lots of really, really insightful stuff, but again, shrouded in mystery, in Well, I, I love the fact that if, in... if you're a great military strategist, you're Klaus Witzian, irrespective almost of what your strategy is. Yeah, and actually... Like, he's good. If you're good, you must be like him. Yes, uh, and without without wanting to get into the details that we'll explode, expose in that episode, um, actually quite a lot of what we think is Klaus Witzian is actually Jomanian. And we get Jomanian and Klaus Witz confused, and even military leaders and military historians do. So lots to expose there, and it will help anybody that's, you know, 
in the in the military in founding more smart in the mess or writing better. well but also civilians i think in business it's really important to be able to turn up to important meetings and say like von Clausewitz said mm. so i'm looking forward yeah, to that absolutely one. and we can get into centers of gravity and decisive oh. points um, and then finally, um, it won't be finally, we're going to continue this, but the last one we're going to mention today, because we haven't thought this far ahead, um, will be Erwin Rommel. Yeah, I think Rommel's an interesting one because, A, he's a baddie. There's a good place to start. <laughs> Are we the baddies? Are we the baddies? Uh, Armstrong and Miller. Armstrong and Miller? No, uh, Mitchell and Webb. Mitchell and Webb. Google Mitchell and Webb. Are we the baddies on YouTube? And you will see an excellent. But Rommel's a baddie, but I think he's... He's one of these people that has such a fascinating, um, the stories of him roaming the North African desert, running rings around the British army. Very interesting. He wasn't the bad guy. Arguably, he was potentially anti-Hitler, but actually he was defeated in North Africa. So there's a lot to unpick there, which I think is interesting. And, and hopefully, particularly for a British audience, well, actually for most audiences, maybe slightly a less well-trodden path as well, Rommel. Yeah, and again, lots of mythology, lots of misunderstanding. The desert fox. The desert fox. Um, and and uh, yeah, he was anti-Hitler, but he wasn't necessarily anti-Nazi. He wasn't necessarily anti-Third Reich. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just being anti-Hitler doesn't make you a goodie by default. But we'll get into that. So yeah, there, there, there we go. That is... But is it I mean, I think this, I'm, I'm excited about doing this because A, it, it forces me to, as you've people who have listened before, read a bit more, which apparently is a good New Year's resolution. But it, it by now, for those of you who've listened to multiple episodes, no, there's no simple answer to these things. So poking around a bit and learning a little bit more and having more examples and having more points of comparison that's really what this is about. So yeah. anyone who expects us to come out with these, which is good, like is von Clausewitz good or bad, you'll be very disappointed. Yeah. The answer I suspect for almost all of these is, well, this was good. This wasn't so good, but this worked and this didn't work. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, all right. Absolutely. I think we've probably done enough for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Again, you know, we want to keep growing the number of people who listen and participate. So remember, we're on, on Battling With Biz on uh, Twitter. Uh, we also have our email address, which is battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com for those people more au fait with email. Or frankly, come find us. We're on LinkedIn, Chris Kitchener uh, and Gareth Tennant. So for now, thank you very much. And we look forward to speaking to you again very, very soon. Wonderful. Cheerio.